book of Esther is the book next to the book of Job, which is next to the book of Psalms. That'll be where you find it. Find Psalm and take a left to the fourth chapter. I'd like to um, do a little trivia with me. Have you do a little trivia with me? There is a book in the Bible that does never that never mentions the name or the word God. What book is that? Esther. Get that. Give him a tootsie roll. He he won the contest. That's this is that this is the book, the book of Esther, and because of that, a lot of people. Um, don't believe it should be canonized, but it is canonized. And I want to read beginning verse 12 of the book of Esther, chapter 4. And they related Esther's words to Mordecai. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews, for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. The the Living Bible has it. Who can say but that God has brought you into the palace for just such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go in to the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. If it means I die, I die. So Mordecai went away, did just as Esther had commanded him. I want to tell you a kind of a homespun parable, and I'd like you to listen to it. You've just moved into a new community of several hundred people. You want to break into the community and be part of the life of the community, get involved, and you want to know how to break into the inner circle. And you observe by, and, and ask, and by asking questions, you find out that the, the focus of that community is on their apple trees. Everybody has at least two. And apple trees and growing of apples in this community is vital to the pecking order. That is, the person who has the most beautiful, luscious, healthy, shiny apples is the number one man in the community. Now, you don't know anything about fruit, fruit trees, or anything else, but... You want to be a part of the community, so apples, you know, that's pretty important. You've got a couple of trees growing in your backyard. It's not the time for the fruit, but there are leaves on all the trees, and so you go check it out, not knowing anything about apples or other fruit trees. You assume that those are apple trees, but the leaves are a little different, the trunk's different, bothers you just a little bit. But as you talk to people, you notice that they talk about different varieties of apples. And so you kind of console yourself by thinking, well, I've just got a different variety than most of the other people in town. One day you you notice, to your horror, 
that everybody's trees in town are blossoming but yours. I mean, the whole town is just gorgeously fragrant with apple blossoms. Your trees just sit there. So you've heard it's important to talk to plants. That helps. So you go out to the backyard and say those important words. Do something stupid. I mean, everybody else's trees are blossoming. Nothing happens. So you go over to the next city, you know, times are getting desperate, and you buy a couple of cases of apples and some monofilament fish line, and, and in the dark of night you climb up on a ladder and you hang the most beautiful, gorgeous, luscious apples by that fish line on the limbs of those trees. And you're thinking, man, I'm, I'm, I'm okay now. And you watch as people pass, you know, by neighbors and they pause to look at your trees and you see them, you're peeking out the drapes and they're smiling talking about your apple trees. You're assuming, man, they like my apples. One morning you notice that, that uh, it's time now to pluck these apples off and get them out of there. They're beginning to wither a little bit, so you, you take them down. And all of a sudden, your tree begins to blossom kind of got it in reverse order, and your worst nightmare comes to pass. One morning you get up, and the little fruit is growing on your trees. It's got a long neck and a kind of an oblong bottom, and all of a sudden you realize you've got pear trees in your backyard. And now you're double dumb because you didn't know they were not apple trees, and besides that, you tried to make an apple, a pear tree into an apple tree. Now I want you to put a pause button on that parable. I'm going to come back to it in a moment, in a moment because I'm going to ask three questions that relate to Esther and to apple trees. The book of Esther takes place during the time of the Medo-Persian Empire. You remember that the Jewish nation was taken into captivity by the Babylonians and for 70 years they lived in Babylonian captivity. Toward the end of that 70 year reign the, the, the Persians, which is now modern-day Iran, overcame the Babylonians and took Babylon under its rule and authority as long uh, and it became the middle, the Middle Persian Empire. The king of this period of time was a man by the name of Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. He had 127 provinces under his rule, and he decides to have a big party to celebrate. The party is a gigantic one. It takes place for six months. The first few days of the party, they just gathered all of the treasures and the rewards of the spoils of their victories and celebrated their wealth. And then they threw this gigantic banquet and they had a lot of eating and a lot of drinking. There was a lot of revelry and everybody was getting drunk. Somebody mentioned the, queen, the king's wife. Her name was Vashti. Hadn't seen her around. And so the king decided he would bring Vashti in because a part of the perks of any king was that he had the most beautiful women and he just wanted to parade her around in front of the princes and all of the, 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 uh, the men of prominence of the community and let her look at his beautiful wife. And so when they went to tell, the king wants you to come and parade before the men in the banquet, she said a horrible word. She said no. Now you don't say no to the king, even if you are his wife. And besides that, the, the leaders of the provinces said, man, you can't let her, let her get by with that. If you let her tell you no, our wives are going to tell us no. I mean, we'll have a revolt in this, this, this country. There'll be a woman's liberation movement, the likes of which nobody has ever seen. You can't let her get by with that. So he didn't. He had her banished from the land. Now the king has no queen. 
And so one comes to him one day and says, has a marvelous idea, why don't we do this? Why don't you bring all the beautiful fair virgins of the, of the empire in and we'll line them all up in some kind of a beauty contest and you take the pick, your pick, which one you want for your wife. Perfect, wonderful idea. Now there was a house in the capital city where a man lived by the name of Mordecai. He had a daughter, it really wasn't his daughter, it was a girl he had he raised from her childhood. Her, her parents were killed in the dispersion, the Jewish dispersion, and they, they were, they were, he was the uncle of Mordecai. He raised this girl. She was beautiful. And so he says to her one day, in essence, Esther, they're going to be coming for you, and you're going to the, queen, to the king's palace and there's some kind of mystery that surrounds this, surrounds this as to whether or not she, they knew she was a Jew and Mordecai was a Jew. That's insignificant really at this point. He just told her, he said, now when you get to the king's palace, it might be a good idea to keep that secret that you're a Jew. When they got to the place where the beauty contest was taking place, she was so beautiful, the king was struck with her immediately. In fact, he loved her twice as much as any of the, of the rest. She was twice as beautiful, so he chose her as his wife. Now Esther is in a place of prominence, a place of authority, a place of significance. There's a kind of a little aside about Mordecai. He was a man of prominence, a certain amount of prominence himself. The scripture says that he sat in the gate, which means that he had a voice in the community life. He was kind of an official, really. And when it says he sat in the gate, it was the place where counsel and, and decisions were made for city life. So he must have been something like a city councilman, a, a man of prominence. And while sitting at the gate, he heard two men plot the death of the king. And he sent word to Esther that the king's going to be assassinated and spared his life. The plot was uncovered and the king was spared. Now, first question. What did Esther's position as queen of Persia do to her relationship with God? I mean, after all, here is a woman who is a Jew and a foreigner and she's living among people of different values and different lifestyles and different religions. And she's in a place of focus where people have a totally different way of life than hers. Can she remain a Jew there? And can she keep her identity there? And what will it do to her relationship with God? I mean, if she has been born a Jew and and, and if her purpose in life is to glorify God, can she remain that kind of person where she is? I ask you the same question this morning. Can you stay where you are and, and remain the, and, and, and preserve your identity as a Christian? I mean, can you work where you work and still be a Christian? Jeff handed me an article last week about Adolf Coors IV. Name sound familiar? Seen his name, I hope not in your refrigerator, but Adolf Coors. Adolf Coors IV is the son of the founder of the Coors Brewer, Brewery Company. His mother, was, when his father was killed by an escaped convict, his mother turned to drink herself and drank herself to death. And his sister at age 27 died of cancer. And out of the struggle of finding purpose, trying to find purpose in his life, Adolf Coors IV decided 
that this wasn't the way for him, and he found Christ as his Savior. Now, does he stay with Adolf Kurz, with, with the family empire? Can he do that and remain a witness, a viable witness to Christ? He decided he couldn't and said, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Let me ask you this question. Can you still maintain your identity as a Christian witness and run around with the people you run around with? Can you preserve your identity as a child of God and have the same friends and do the same parties and have the same kind of things going on in your life that you do now? What will it do to your relationship with God if you stay where you are as Esther did? Pretty heavy question. Now chapter 3 begins like this. Moves us to the second question. There is a man who arrives on the scene. His name is Haman. He's a bad guy, terrible. I won't go into his genealogy. This morning in the early service, my watch stopped. True story. I thought it was 10 after 9. I was going right on. I could tell people were, you know, I'd left them a long time ago, found out it was 9.30. I mean, it's a true story. I, so I'm not going to get into that genealogy. Haman was a bad guy. For some strange reason, Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, made him second in command of the kingdom. I mean, number two man. And, he's, and the result of making Haman number two man in the community put out a decree that when, ha, when, ha, when Haman walked by, when this man walked by, everybody had to bow. And so he walking out through the city. He's feeling pretty strong, pretty powerful. And as he walked among the people, everybody bowed their knee to him except one man. Guess who? Mordecai. Mordecai. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow his knee, it made him furious. Why aren't you bowing? Do you know who I am? Why don't you bow your knee to me? And, Haman, and, and Mordecai said, because I'm a Jew. So what? You're a Jew. Because Jews bow their, no, their knee to no man save God alone. And so Haman went to the king with that bit of news. He said, kind of came in from the back door. He said, did you know that you know, we got a lot of people in this province who are not like us, they're foreigners and they have different value system and they have different laws and they're obedient in different ways. And it's not to our best interest to keep these people around. We need to put them away, get rid of them. And so um, Ahasuerus said, well, do it. And he signed a decree to exterminate the Jews from the land, sealed it with his signet ring, and made it known in the country. And when Mordecai heard, this, heard that announcement, he went into mourning. He tore off his clothes, put on sackcloth, and lamented. And in the fourth chapter it says that he sent word to Esther. Now Esther, you've got a You've got to intercede in our behalf. Go before the king and plead for the Jews. But you just don't go in to the king uninvited, even if you are his wife. You have to have a personal invitation. He has to hold out his scepter to you. And she said, well, now, that's against the law. He'll, he'll kill me if I do that. If I just walk in on the king uninvited, he'll put me to death. And there are these words that come to Esther from Mordecai that you've heard preached before. Well, who knows but that you're come to the kingdom for such an hour as what do you know except that you were born for this moment? Ah. Oh. Who knows but that you have your life for this moment in time, for this moment in history. And so Esther sends word back to Mordecai, I'll do it 
And if I die, I die. It's time for me to stand up as, and, 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 and let people know who I am. Second question, are you listening? Second question. Why are you where you are at this moment in time? You know, I fell off here. Why, why are you where you are at this moment in time? Now, I'm not talking about just being in church this morning, and that's pretty significant itself. A, a man came in out of the storm. A young man came in out of a storm one day. It was raining and cold, and he slipped into this church building to, to, to seek some shelter. And an old man was up, a layman, a, a, a substitute preacher was up preaching, and he was stumbling through his sermon. He, he didn't know what to say. He was terrible. All he could say, he just repeated over and over, look unto me and be ye saved, all ye ends of the earth. He just said it over and over. And at the end of that service, Charles Spurgeon went forward and was saved and became the greatest English-speaking preacher that's ever lived. Why are you where you are right now? But that question is much, goes much broader than that. Let me ask you this question. Why do you think God has put you where you are at work? Why do you think you're where you are at work? Why do you think you have your neighbors, the neighbors that you have? Those neighbors maybe have started kind of extending a little interest in you and, 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 and are a little bit friendly. Why do you think that's happening? Why did God move you to Southeastern and put you on the darn floor where you are? Why do you have the neighbors that you have? Whose lives do you touch day by day? Pretty heavy question. That leads me to the third question. When the king saw Esther, he saw her sad. She was downcast and depressed. And so the king says to Esther, Esther, what's the matter with you? You're unhappy and I want you to be happy. I love you. In fact, I'll give you anything. I'll give you up to half the kingdom, whatever it takes to make you happy. Sometimes it takes that much and more to make them happy. That's, hey, hey, I lost my head there. I, that's, that's not in my notes. Cancel that out and, and we'll, we'll, we'll erase that from the tape. What's it going to take to make you happy? She said, all I want is to have a big banquet. I'd like to have a banquet, a big dinner, and I'd like for us to invite one man. I'd like for us to invite Haman. Haman, number two man. So the invitation went out to Haman. He was coming to the dinner. Well, he's feeling pretty proud. I mean, everybody in the kingdom, he's the only one invited. Look out. I mean, he's pretty important. So they have this dinner, and... and uh, Dinner's over, and the king says, okay, what do you want? Esther, she said, I want to have a second banquet. The second banquet, I want to prepare myself. Well, whatever you say. So Haman goes out, and he's strutting his stuff. Number two man, going to have a banquet, and I was the only one invited. Going to have a second banquet, I'm going to be the only one invited. As he walks by, he sees Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't bend his knee, and he's furious. Number two Jew... I mean, number two man, walk by a Jew, doesn't bend his knee. He goes home, tells his wife. His wife, gentle, kind, loving, supporting wife, says two words, hang him. And so he, he why not think of that, he thinks. So he, he gets his gallus, and he gets ready to hang Mordecai on the gallus. Now watch the plot, watch this. Nighttime comes on. King Ahasuerus is restless in his sleep. 
So he gets up in the middle of the night, he can't sleep, and he gets his chronicles, his diary, all the events of his reign. He begins to read over it. And lo and behold, he reads in his diary and reminds him of the day that Mordecai had saved his life. And Mordecai had not been rewarded. I mean, nobody has done even told him thank you. And so he calls in Haman. He says, Haman, if you wanted to honor a man in the country as the greatest man, and you want to give him the greatest honor, what would you do for him? And Haman's thinking, who could it be but me? I mean, I'm a number two man, and I'm the only one invited to the banquet. Who else could it be? So he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. He said, I'd put a royal robe on him and, and make him kingly, and I'd put him on a horse, and I'd get somebody to lead that horse through the town, announcing, here is the king's highest man. Here's the man who we want to honor above all others. And the king said, great idea, wonderful. Don't change a thing. In fact, I want you to lead the horse. <laughs> Holy cow. And then, and then the king said those words that just wanted, made him want to throw up. He said, get the robe and put it on Mordecai. Mordecai. Oh, Mordecai. That name just sent a chill through him. And he was going to put him on the horse and he was going to lead that man through the town announcing here is a man deserving of the greatest honor. And he went home and told that to his wife. And there's a strange little twist here. When his wife heard that, she said, well, if this man is a Jew, if he's a Jew, he'll never bow down to you. You'll bow down to him. And so the second banquet happened. And at the second banquet, the king looks at Esther and says, you haven't told me what will make you happy. Oh, she said, I don't know if I can be happy or not. Because there's a man who's going to have us Jews taken into captivity. If it were just that, I wouldn't even trouble you with the word. But he wants to kill all of us. Oh, he said, there's a man wants to kill you. Tell me his name. And she looked at Haman, and he tried to crawl under the Persian rug and <laughs> turn white as sheet. And she said, that man. And King Ahasuerus got up out of his seat and went out into the garden to get a breath of fresh air. It sickened him. And while he was gone, Old Haman was on his knees begging for his life and he got so caught up in that he toppled over on the couch where Esther was reclining. Just at the time King Ahasuerus came back in the room, he saw Haman on Esther's couch. And he took that man out and hung him on the gallows he erected for Mordecai. And the 8th chapter of the book of Esther, listen to this, the 8th chapter of the book of Esther says, and there was joy among the Jews. To say the least, there was joy. Third question, here it is. If this were the last day of your life, what would be the residue of it? That is, 
if, the, if suddenly God drew a bottom line on your life today and this was the end of it, how would you be remembered? For Esther, she was the queen, she was the Joan of Arc of the Jewish nation. She was the, na- she was the person who saved a nation of Jews. In fact, they instituted the Feast of Purim, which is celebrated, and she's the one they celebrate. But if, they, if you came to the end of your life, how would you be remembered? Pretty good question. And so my great Bible, my great preaching professor, Garden Kleiner, told about going to this church to be the interim pastor. He followed the president of Southwestern Seminary. His name was J. Howard Williams. He said, when I went out there, he said, I'd heard about that church. I heard that that church was a troubled church. They fought all the time. He said, when I became the interim pastor, I found these people the most loving, kind, gentle, wondrous, wonderful people I'd ever met. He said, I asked him one day in a deacon's meeting, I said, I've heard your, about your church, your reputation. It's terrible. I've heard you fussed and fought all the time. What happened to you? And they said, well, when J. Howard Williams became our interim pastor over a year ago, something happened. We couldn't fuss with one another as long as J. Howard Williams was here. We started loving one another. I mean, how how will you be remembered? I mean, what person, who is there in this world whose life will never be the same because you touch them? How will they remember you? Big question. And a seminary professor stood up to tell about a young lady that he knew in college, a college student. He said whenever she came into anybody's presence, it just seemed like God had come. And if they were telling off-color jokes, they'd stop. And if she ever went to a prayer meeting, it just seemed like God invaded the prayer meeting. After the service was over, a young guy came up to that Seminary professor, I know exactly who you're talking about. Her name is Helen. Let me tell you a story on top of that you can tell. He said one night we were in a house having a little social gathering and somebody had said, well, that's Helen's picture there on the mantel, isn't it? He said everybody looked to see Helen's picture and one by one he said, we fell to our knees in prayer. He said that was years after she died. I mean, what kind of influence, what kind of residue will your life have on those who follow after you? Whoa, what a question. So when John Geddes went to Aristides in 1848, he worked for 24 years under the name of God there. And when he died, they put a little plaque, a little tombstone, and inscribed on it, John Geddes, when he came in 1948, There were no Christians here when he left in 1872, 1848. When he left in 1872, there were no heathens here. And Peter Melm went to the little New Hebrides island of Nurunga. When he died, they put his picture on the wall of a little church he started. And underneath the the picture on that church walls, this little statement, he came, no light. He died, no darkness. There's some of us this morning who are painfully aware how brief life is. 
You young people don't realize it. But that little dash that's on every tombstone from the date of birth to the date of death is just what life is, just a dash. I heard a guy on t- talking on a talk show last week. He said he ha- he's out hunting over by Patillo, Texas. I know where it is, a little old wide spot in the road down southeast of Fort Worth, that is southwest of Fort Worth. He said, I, I happened on a cemetery out there. He's, he's asking this guy on, on Four Country Reporters, have you ever been there? He said, this cemetery is all limestone tombstones, and it all took place in the 1840s to 1860, and everybody buried in that cemetery, he said, was three years of age and under. Must have been an orphanage there and there somewhere. Just a dash is this life. Like a vapor, like a caravan racing toward the end is this life. Like a flower that blossoms in the morning and dies and is gone is this life. Some of us are painfully aware of that. Now when the bottom line is drawn and they look back on your life, how will you be remembered? That's a big question that everybody in this room needs to answer. Let's pray. Our Father, we know that we're here not by accident and that for some strange reason, some reason for which we cannot account, we're placed in places we never dreamed we'd be among people we never thought we would ever know. And God, if we're somewhere today where we can't maintain our Christian identity, where we have to play the game, pin on apples on Sundays, try to be something we're not, God, convict us. And if this morning there is a reason that we're here because you want to speak to our heart and you want to elicit from us a response. Give us courage. And God, help us to consider what we leave behind to our children and to our children's children. What they'll say about us when we're gone. What they'll know about us when we're not here. Oh, God, help us to make the decision that would affect all of eternity for others. For I pray in Jesus' name. I want to ask you this morning to consider giving your heart and life to Jesus Christ in this service. To step out and come to say, I want Jesus as my Savior and Lord. I want to give Him my heart and life. Whatever has happened, I see as as all has happened to working together for the good of my coming to know Christ. I want to give my heart to Jesus. I want to repent of my sin. I want to give my life to Him. Or, may, or maybe come and place your life in this church. Like, like a young, young lady in the early service 
She literally was led to Durant. True story, she's a teacher at George Washington. She applied for a job. She came by here to, on the day she applied just to visit with us here at church and get acquainted with us. Change clothes here. An outsider, I mean, you just don't come into Durant and get a school teaching job. You just got out of college. There were 200 people applied for that job. They interviewed 15 people. She got the job. She said, I believe, I believe since I was a little girl, God called me to the mission field. She said, I know now, this is my mission field, George Washington Elementary School. She came and joined our church this morning. Maybe, maybe you could feel that same urging of God to say, look, I mean, I believe that the reason I'm here is that God's purpose for my life is to glorify Him and I want to fit into that purpose and I want to join this church or maybe you just need to come to recommit your life to Christ. While we, lead, while we sing and, and Mark leads us through an invitation, we're not going to let stay long. If you're going to come, you'll come on the first word. So while we stand to sing, we invite you to respond.